Welcome to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, your tour guide on the journey to becoming a veterinarian. Listen along as we provide you with tips, tricks, and tales on applying to veterinary school. Welcome back to the Pre-Vet Podcast. I'm Alex Avellino, and today my guest is Dr. McCarroll, who is an assistant professor of large animal surgery. Dr. McCarroll, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We really want to dive into what a large animal surgeon's day looks like, what it takes to be a large animal surgeon. So could you first go through for our pre-vet students what your path to veterinary medicine looked like? Where did you go to school? What did you do to prepare? So I'm Canadian, and so in Ontario, there's only one school you can go to, and that is Guelph, um, which is good because it's a great school. So I went to Guelph for my undergrad. I was quite fortunate, got into to vet school um, first time around. I, I did a lot, though. I mean, I did well in school, but I also did a lot. I mean, I so I continued to help out at the small animal clinic. Um, I worked at a farm just because I did that because I rode horses. Um, and I also spent um, a summer out on my dad's cousin's farm. So it was a, a working cow-calf cool. beef farm, and they had sheep, and they had chickens. You know, so... I mean, I had a pretty broad base mm-hmm. of experience when I got in. Um, so yeah, I did vet school, thought I was going to be a mixed animal vet. And then my first rotation of fourth year was large animal surgery. Mm-hmm. So that was my first clinical rotation. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I did really well. And that was the first moment I was like, hmm, maybe I could do this. Yeah. I was like, well, I'll just apply for an internship. I was, you know, 50% medicine, 50% surgery. Mm-hmm. I really actually loved both, but ultimately wanted to be a surgeon. So Was it all in large animal, the internship? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was mostly horses, but we also, we did see um, cattle as well. And again, the occasional paca and yeah. sheep and that yeah. sort of thing. So applied for residency. Um did not get one my first time, which was fairly crushing. How many, uh, or they just matched you? Or did I went, match? yeah, I went through the match program. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So, so anyway, yeah, I didn't, didn't get the residency, was pretty crushed about that. Um, didn't know what I was going to do. I was like, oh, I guess I'll just go. I, I mean, I, I had a job if I wanted it at a small animal practice. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just go do that. And then I got an email from a surgeon at Cornell University. He's very, he's very prominent. And so... He asked if I wanted to come do research in his lab. Oh. I had zero intention of ever doing research. Yeah. <laughs> Going to Cornell, did orthopedic research um, and regenerative medicine, so stem cells, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, did that for three years, loved it, um, and then got a residency at a private practice Okay. in Kentucky, which was... Oh, that's like, different than Canada. Yeah. <laughs> and New York. Yes, very different, Yeah. Um, which was, I call it my slow migration south. So, <laughs> um, so that was an amazing experience. I mean, very, very different. I think a lot of people were surprised that I went to a private practice to do my residency because I was all academia before that. Yeah. Um, it, but it was amazing. And it is that practice is kind of a, um, lots of people call it a, you know, it's like the Mayo Clinic for horses. And so they do practice cool. at a very, at a very high level in a very academic way. Mm-hmm. You just don't have... The, the students and the whole research sure. institute there. But otherwise, I mean, it's a pretty rigorous program. Um, it was it was, it was was intense. I mean, that place is well known for, for being an intense, intense program. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but for me, it was worth it. Like I'd rather I'm like cram in all the experience you can give me in the shortest time possible. Like I'm, that's again a philosophy thing, but I'm all for that. So why don't you tell us what an equine surgeon does? What's our daily routine look like if a daily routine exists? So private practice, what our day would look like. Um, horse people tend to do things early, mm-hmm. okay. Um, especially especially with breeding and racing industries. So it depends, a little industry dependent, but in general, horse people are up early and want stuff done early. Yeah. Um, so we would get up. So not the surgeons, but the the interns and residents would be up as early as necessary to have all the horses looked at, physical exams done, orders written, um, and bandages changed by 7.30 a.m. Mm-hmm. Then we would do rounds with our service. So that is where you walk around with the surgeon and discuss all of the cases, mm-hmm. review how everybody's doing. Um, and then you, your days are typically either surgery days or admitting days. Mm-hmm. And it depends a little bit what the surgeon does. So if somebody is primarily um, orthopedic focused, mm. then their non-surgery days are mostly going to be lameness. Um, Let's break down what lameness is because it's so important right. to know. Yeah. So lameness is one of these interesting things that is not surgery, but is a large part of what surgeons do in horses. So lameness evaluations are performed on horses when they have pain in one or more limbs, and you're trying to determine what the cause of that pain is. Yeah. So diagnose it so that you can ultimately treat it. And that could be in muscles and bones? Yeah, so joints, bones, muscle, mm-hmm. tendon, ligament, any of those structures might be involved. So we watch the horses trot. Um, sometimes it gets more advanced than that, but the basic, we watch them trot. Um, we inject local anesthetics to try and figure out where the lameness goes away after we inject the local anesthetic sure. to tell us, I'm like, okay, this is our region of interest, basically. Yeah. Um, and then we follow that up with some type of imaging. So x-rays, ultrasound, bone scan, CT, MRI, you know. And what are some typical reasons why a horse would experience lameness? <laughs> um, so that's really discipline uh, specific. Okay. That's one of the things where horses are – different than a lot of the veterinary species we deal with in that they do very different things. Mm. And so, you know, if you're dealing with small animals, the thing, the diseases that dogs are going to get is going to be heavily dependent on their breed. In horses, what they get is going to be heavily dependent on what they do. Oh, okay. So, so discipline or sport is very important. So race horses are typically going to have, um, you know, they might have little chip fractures, might have um, tendon or ligament injuries, those kinds of things. They can have stress fractures. Um, you're dealing with dressage horse, jumper, you know, what we call English sport horses and the Western sport horses. They get different things, but you're often dealing with arthritis and tendon ligament injuries and muscle injuries. Okay. If you're more soft tissue focused, then you might be dealing with, um, you know, scoping horses. So looking at their airway, evaluating patients before you do surgery on them. So if you're doing mass removals, that sort of thing, you need to, you know, evaluate that and make some decisions before you just go running off to surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on surgery days, again, it, it depends. So in a busy private practice, um, you know, you, 
you start surgery eight o'clock ish in the morning. The horse gets put under general anesthesia from for most of the orthopedic surgeries we would do. Um, and then they go into the OR, you do your surgery, they roll the recovery stall, somebody rolls the next horse in, you do that surgery. So you could be doing more than one surgery a day. Oh, yeah. So again, this is really variable by practice and by surgery type. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing, you know, elective arthroscopies, which are mostly fairly quick, um, you know, you can be looking at doing 10 surgeries a day. Okay. Now, I wouldn't say that's the norm of all practices. That would be a very high volume practice. Mm -hmm. The other thing with large animal surgery is you have to be very flexible with your schedule. Okay. Because I just told you what the schedule is, and then it frequently doesn't happen exactly sure. as planned. And that's because emergencies come in yeah. and upend your entire day. The other thing is our schedules are less um, reliable just because, you know, patients will be late. It's like, oh, trailer broke down. Sure. You know, horse didn't want to get on the trailer. We had to cancel our appointment. I mean, that stuff yeah. happens. It doesn't ha That doesn't happen in small animal, you know. Yeah, a lot that you can't control because you're working with big animals. Yeah, so the dog will will get in the car. Right, <laughs> some, the horse Someone will not. pick the dog up and put it in the car. It will get to the clinic. But sometimes... People just can't get the horse to the clinic. It happens. So you um, would you say that one of the main qualities of an equine surgeon is someone who's flexible and adaptable? Yeah. Yes, very okay. much so. You just have to be, you know, you get very used to your whole day gets kind of upended, and you're just like, it's fine. We'll get it done. You just have to have that mindset. Just yeah. can do. It's like, yep, we'll figure it out. We'll get it done one way or another. And so roll not, with it. And a lot could be dependent on the client if they can't, you know, get the horse in the trailer. So what is client communication like with, for equine surgeons? Pretty intense. Um, horses can have a lot of people associated with them. Mm. So at a minimum, at a minimum, we'd be dealing with just the client. Some some cases are what we call self-referred. So the client just brings them into us. Mm -hmm. Most of our cases would be referred by another by another veterinarian. So you're at a minimum talking to the client and the veterinarian who yes. referred the horse in yes. to keep them up to date. Um, but some horses you have an owner or multiple owners. You have a trainer. Mm -hmm. You have a rider, you have a farm manager, you have an insurance agent. Oh, God. And you may have more than one referring veterinarian. Who are probably super invested in this horse. Yeah. And so so those some of those cases can get pretty intense. That's a big thing, I mean, for veterinary medicine overall. That's uh, maybe one of the biggest misunderstandings. Yes. Is it's great to go into veterinary medicine because you love animals, but you got to like people too Correct. because it is a huge part of my day is yeah. talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> And ultimately, as the surgeon, um, we're a little different than human medicine in that on the human side, if you have surgery, the anesthesiologist is going to come talk to you mm -hmm. and, and you're going to know who's anesthetizing you and communicate with them. Yes. That's not how it works for us. So I do all of the communication. So if something goes wrong with the horse. Oh, you're in, the face of it. I'm the face. Wow. And so because of that, you know, I would say... Most equine surgeons are pretty involved in making sure that all of the whole process goes crazy. It's not just I don't just walk in, do surgery, and walk away. I'd no. love to, yes. but um, but ultimately, as you say, I'm going to be the one dealing with this if there's a problem. And so, so taking responsibility, mm -hmm. owning the entire situation. Yeah, whether ownership. I'm there or not, wow, it's, it's on me. I'm, I have to instill confidence quickly, quickly, yeah, so that pe these people trust me. How do you do that? 
Um, that's a great question. I mean, so I think it, so. This is confidence, big one. Okay. So being a surgeon, you do have to be a very confident yes. person. And there's healthy level of confidence and an unhealthy mm-hmm. level, right? So to be a surgeon, you need to be confident. As one as one of the surgeons said to me when we were talking about this one day when we were looking at candidates, he said, you know, when you're in surgery and something goes wrong or you find something unexpected, you need to believe in that moment that you can fix it. Yikes. Because you can't just be like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. No. And you don't have hours to ponder. Yes, you have to act. Now, sometimes in some situations, the responsible thing to do is, if you can, is to wake the patient up. But, you know, if you're having a bleeder or something, you need to deal with that Mm -hmm. right then and there. Mm -hmm. And so you need to have a lot of self-confidence. You need to exude confidence to other people. Yep. Got to convince them. Um, But you also have to be very introspective and analytical. You know, it's after every surgery, I always think to myself, okay, what went well? What would I like to do better next time? Is there anything that like really needs to get fixed? Mm-hmm. You know, you would need to, every single surgery you do, you should be, anal- you know, analyzing wow. yourself and, and the whole process really to try and make it things better every single time. Do you need a thick skin to be a surgeon? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Both for, both for that and also just for getting through the, the training programs, you know, the right. training, training programs, rigorous and, you know, I, I know I can tell from the look on the faces of my residents sometimes when I'm, you know, critiquing them and they're just like, oh, my God, leave me alone, you know. But it's you have a very short time to get very proficient at something. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when I'm training my residents, I want to train them to be not just to get the surgery done, but to be an excellent surgeon. And you have to be able to take that criticism in the moment, unfortunately. When we're doing surgery, if I have to correct your your hand movements, we can't talk about it after, right? right? It's got to be, I, I have to tell you then, because yeah. that's when you're actually doing it. Wow. And that means that I have to correct the residents in front of the other people. Sure. And it doesn't mean that it's mean, you know, but you are, you are getting critiqued mm-hmm. with other people around. We can't, you know, we, we do sit down and, and discuss things later about certain things, but when you're talking the about moment. the technical aspect, it has to be in the moment. Well, and that's interesting, too, because I think vet med attracts a lot of tender-hearted people because yeah. they have that love for animals. But you have to, you can't be faint of heart to be a veterinarian and specifically a specialist because you the training. It's rigorous. It's, and and yeah. people are going to be pointing out your mistakes. So if you're not okay with having folks pointing out your mistakes – you're either going to pick something else or you have to become okay with it. And I want to encourage everybody stick with those really tough, uncomfortable moments because they're stretching you for the future. And eventually you're going to care a lot less because you're used to it. You see the value in it and your skin gets a lot thicker. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I think it's just, you have to take a step back and say, okay, these people are trying to make me better. Right. right. So I, there's there's one surgeon out there that's extremely well known and he's extremely difficult, or not difficult person, but he's extremely hard on people. Mm-hmm. The other thing, though, is watching him. He's also extremely hard on himself. Mm. So I remember thinking one day, I'm like, OK, well, if he's treating himself the same way he treats everybody else. That's fair. That's that's him. <laughs> right. Practicing what he preaches. Yeah. Um, and and the thing is, this person just truly 
believes in exceptionalism mm-hmm. and and wants everybody to be the absolute best they yes. can be. And so he's going to push for that. And someone made a comment once, if he's not pushing you, you should be concerned. Oh, sure. Right? Because it means... He doesn't see potential. He doesn't, he doesn't see the potential. Right? Yeah. So... So think about it that way sometimes. You know, if people are pushing you, it's because they see something Correct. in you and they, they think that they can really bring the best out of you and that's why they're doing it. And I think if you think of things that way, yes, um, it's, it's a lot easier to take. You're just like, this is okay. This yes. is fine. It's not personal. They're just trying to make me better and that's fine. And I'm going to learn from it. I'm going to grow and I'll be grateful for it in five years. What advice do you have for students, whether they go the equine surgery route or not? What can they be doing to become the best veterinarian? So I think that getting out and getting as much practical experience as possible is really important. And I think really embracing those experiences and taking them to heart. And so what I mean by that is we talk a lot about um, on the clinic for us, you know, there's a, a, a real challenge and an important challenge to improve everybody's work-life balance, which I'll tell you I've none. So (laughs) if you want to be a surgeon and you think you're going to go nine to five and then have all the rest of your time off, it's not how it works. Um, Good to know. I would love it. Be realistic. I I would love it to be that way, but it's not. And so that's what I think is really important is I do think, I do worry sometimes about watering down the student's experience in an effort to... um, improve their kind of overall quality and personal time. Mm-hmm. And, and I totally I totally get that and I support it. But at the same time, it's not the reality of where large animal surgery is right now. Okay. I mean, I think we can try and make changes, move that direction, but to pretend that that's going to happen tomorrow mm-hmm. is not realistic. Sure. And so I, th- I think getting, finding ways to get as much practical experience as you can, you know, do externships and, you know, when – when there's emergencies at night, go in for those emergencies. So you know what you're getting so into. So you know, yeah, see what it's like to stay up at night and, yes. you know, have to do a three-hour colic surgery and then sit there and recover the horse for another three hours and oh boy. not lose your patience and just want to go home and go to bed. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, that is the reality of what we do. And so I think getting as much experience as possible and then really sitting down and asking yourself, like, is – so do I love this? Mm-hmm. Do I love the not fun parts about this? Do I want to have the lifestyle that I'm going to have with this? And and just be really honest with yourself about that. So for me, like, yeah, like I said, my residency was hardcore, (laughs) hardcore. But I loved it and I wouldn't change it for anything. If if you wouldn't feel that way, then I would then don't do it. I mean, do, do it. what do what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay. And for everyone, that's going to look different. Yeah. And for some, it's their job is what makes them happy. And for others, their job they enjoy and they want their nightlife too. So it's good to be introspective and figure that out. And you know, reflect on Dr. McCarroll's path, how she did so many different things to get to this point. That's how she ended up knowing what she loved. So great advice. Keep trying other things. Get some variety. Get some diversity. So when you finally do get to the opportunity to pick your path, whether it's match program, whether it's a private practice, whether it's even going to veterinary school, you'll know if it's what you really want to do. Dr. McCarroll, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm glad to know that our students are going to get thicker skin as they continue to stick with the uncomfortable situations to learn what they love. I'm Alex Avellino, and we'll talk to you soon.